Hello and welcome to the Collective Wisdom Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be a wiser version of yourself. This is a podcast that helps you to tap into your own inner wisdom and find the answers within you for how to live your best life. I'm your host, Kat Preston. I'm a certified life coach and I help people to turn down the noise in their heads and tune into the wisdom in their hearts. Every week, I'll be asking my guests to tell their stories about what they've learned along the way and share some of their wisdom with us. I'm so thrilled you can join us. Hey there, my wise friends, and thank you so much for joining me here on Collective Wisdom. This week, as we're nearing the end of Pride Month, a time for celebrating difference and diversity, I have with me Sean Delenti for what is a very personal and powerful conversation. James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, is often asked what's the most important habit to establish, and his answer is always the same. It's who we spend time with. Studies show we become like the people we are with the most. The energy of the people around you affects you. When someone is beaming enthusiasm, kindness and creativity, it's quite literally medicine for your body and soul. Perhaps you've even had a conversation or shared a story with someone that has completely changed your life. For me, Sean Delenti is one of those people. Twice named on the Independent on Sunday's pink list of the 100 most influential LGBT plus people in the UK, and who in 2020 was listed as one of the top 100 global diversity figures in public life on The Guardian's global diversity list, alongside names such as Barack Obama, Jacinda Ardern and Kamala Harris. As well as being a voice, a role model and an advocate for the LGBT plus community, Sean is also the author and facilitator of Inclusion for All, a programme he wrote in response to the need he saw for better training for educational professionals whilst he was the head teacher of a primary school in Southwark. It's a programme he's gone on to deliver extensively throughout the UK. What is clear is that he's a very busy man, which makes me even more grateful that he's taken the time to join me. As you're about to hear, Sean wears his compassion and kindness on his sleeve. I really can't thank him enough for the tireless work he's doing to change attitudes and to make life more bearable for those in the LGBT plus community who so often encounter prejudice and discrimination for simply being who they are. Joining me today in celebration of Pride Month as it draws to a close, I have the truly exceptional superstar, Sean Delenti. Sean is the multi-award winning author, educator, trainer and advocate for LGBT plus rights and inclusion in schools and organisations across the globe. I first heard Sean's own heartbreaking story on the Soul Music podcast, an all-time favourite of mine which I highly recommend. Of his growing up in his hometown of Lutterworth in the 80s, an era overshadowed by Thatcher when Section 28 of the Education Act forbid the promotion of LGBT plus identities in schools. And if that was you or your identity, Section 28 meant it could not be acknowledged at school. Just imagine for a moment the damage that denial and shaming does to a young person. Sean was so badly bullied at school that he stopped going at all until one day he was called into the deputy head's office to ask about his repeated absence. And he decided to tell him the truth that he was gay and as a result was being beaten, spat at, verbally abused and tormented on a regular basis. But rather than being met with the compassion and understanding he so badly needed, 
His teacher visibly recoiled, leaving him feeling utterly alone in the world. He recounts very movingly how he went home that day, locked himself in the bathroom and almost didn't come out again. But fortunately for the many young people whose lives he's positively impacted since then, Sean did find the courage to overcome that very dark time in his life. Amazingly, and against all the odds, having left school with very little in the way of qualifications, he went on to become a teacher himself. And then in 2009, Sean was catapulted into the role he now holds as an advocate for LGBT plus rights and inclusion, when a survey conducted at the London Primary School where he was a teacher, revealed that a staggering 75% of their primary age pupils were being subjected to daily homophobic bullying and abuse, whether or not they identified as LGBT plus themselves. It was this data that prompted Sean to come out to his school community and start serving as an LGBT plus teaching role model. As such, he devised his groundbreaking inclusion for all training strategy to address this issue of bullying, firstly in his own school and then to meet the clear and unaddressed need in schools and other educational organisations across the country. Sean has since gone on to train over 90,000 educational professionals and facilitate conversations with the many thousands, with many, many thousands of young people. His belief that nobody should face persecution for being their authentic self or who they choose to love acts as a compass for him. As the mother of a lesbian daughter myself, I'm so grateful to him for taking the time to turn what is loss and pain and suffering that he's experienced into such a powerful, essential message of hope and connection for future generations of the LGBT plus community. His story, his philosophy, and the wisdom he now dedicates his life to sharing with the world is captured in his brilliant book, Celebrating Difference, a whole school approach to LGBT plus inclusion. The book starts with a very touching dedication to my friends, Dominic and Roger Crouch, and all those who have suffered, are suffering, or will suffer from bullying, prejudice and discrimination, stigma and hate in our world. You deserve better. I could not agree more. It's a real privilege to talk to you. And, and to talk to you about the life-saving work that you do is that's impacting the lives of so many people around the world, my daughter Hannah included. And, and firstly to say a heartfelt thank you. Thank you, Kat. Thank you for that overwhelming and very generous introduction. And thank you to you for having me here to, to speak and to meet you. And, and thanks to Hannah as well for her life and her yeah. existence in the world. Well, her courage already, you know, she, yeah. I, I think even at the, the ripe old age of 16, it's been, but, but it's, it's leaders like you who have paved the way and made it possible for people like Hannah to understand that there is no shame, mm. that she needs to be who she is. Her authentic identity is, is who she is. It does matter. It's um, given people the language to, to step into that identity. Um, I hope so. I hope so. And, you know, I never, as you, as you just alluded to really in the introduction, I never planned to do any of this. It was a very unexpected journey and continues to be, you know, I thought I would be 
marking books and, and having yeah. parents meetings and sometimes parent com complaint meetings you know I thought I'd be doing that until the end of my career um it was purely based on that set of data in 2009 that suddenly suffering was revealed to, to me and as an educator you have a core duty of care to not only tackle that but also to prevent it happening in future to anybody for whatever reason and really that that was it you you know you faced with that data you have a choice you know and it's about how you respond and react to that and for me there, there was only one choice I could make and that was to do yeah. something about it because it was the right yeah. thing to do little did I know that that program that started in one southeast London school um you know that that, that had a really positive response from the whole school community and based on that response that's why I started picking up the phone and bothering other local heads you know and just saying look we're doing this it's having an impact on all forms of prejudicial bullying would you like to have it in your school and um it was a school in, in Bermondsey actually that first said yeah come and come and do it with us and and that was the start of it and that took me then across Southwark then across London and across the UK and at last count I've spoken to representatives or, or physically in 25 yeah. countries which still sounds like I'm talking about somebody else when I say that, actually. But, but uh, you know, I, you can't plan that. You, I didn't expect it, but my goodness me, is it a privilege. However, I wish it wasn't necessary. Yeah, me too. Me too. I absolutely wish it wasn't necessary. And I do hope that because we have made such progress, if you think about the, the difference between the 80s, that, that Section 28 Act that, that we all just just thought was kind of perfectly normal and was allowed to happen there is a there is a risk that we become complacent and say oh well the work's been done now you know people can express themselves in any way they want but that's what i was sort of interested to talk to you about is is how much are you finding there is still much more work to be done mm. I think I think what's interesting. I was I was thinking about it as you were talking at the start. Is is the word promotion that Section Twenty Eight kind of embedded into into statute? And it's a word. It's mm. a very loaded word, isn't it? Um, and it still gets used now. So you know, you may remember the the protests a few years ago outside Parkfield School in Birmingham. And I actually spent some time amongst those protesters because it's important that we listen to views that we agree with and that we don't agree with. Um, and the word promotion was used a lot by some of the protesters. It's also a word that you will see, you know, in certain newspapers and on social media, that anybody that goes into a school and talks about the simple fact that LGBT plus people exist, which they do, that they have relationships, identities, histories, and contribute to our families, our schools, our world, um, our, our, mm. our economies, which, you know, that, that's a fact. So there's no promotion required. The only bit we're promoting through this work is, is kindness, dignity, respect, and basic human rights. It's education and it's information. But that word promotion still gets banded about. And yes, we have made progress. We've made a lot of progress since the 1980s. However, when you work in this field particularly, you kind of get a bigger sense of what's going on out there in the world and on social media. And I'm more concerned right now than I have been at any point in my 13 year wow. journey in terms of this work. Um, and I always anticipated that there would be a pushback because inevitably when one raises awareness of a particular 
group of people or a protected characteristic, inevitably some people will feel that you're taking their rights away or find that a bit threatening. And I completely understand that. I get that. I don't have a judgment on it. But that has the potential to create a backlash. And I think right now in this country and overseas as well, uh, there is a backlash going on. Um, and that's a great concern to me. So recently when I've been out speaking uh, with teachers uh, and, and, and educators, I've talked to them about the moral obligation for LGBT plus inclusive schools, which of course benefits everybody within them because it makes it safer for everybody. But I've also talked about the statutory expectation. However, I've then said to them, if, if all of that statutory expectation around the Equality Act uh, and school inspections, if that was to go, I'm not mm. saying it will, but it could, um, what about the moral obligation? Surely that still stands. And that still was there in the days of Section 28. You know, it's just that legislation put people in a really difficult position and they were worried for their jobs through no fault of their own. Um, so I guess the message is that we can't rest on our laurels. We can't sit in a space where people will say to me quite often, oh, everything's fine now. You people mm -hmm. have got all your mm -hmm. rights, you know, and things on the surface have got better. But underneath that, prejudice is still there. Discrimination is still there. And just last night, for the second time in six years, I stood uh, observing a two-minute silence in Soho at a vigil to mourn um, members of the LGBT plus community who've been slaughtered purely yeah. for being themselves. And uh, it, six years ago, it was the Pulse Massacre in Orlando. And this weekend, it was the shootings in Oslo, you know, outside a pub I've been to many times in my life. You know, they, they were gunned down purely for being themselves in an act of terrorism. And what I never expected, really, in terms of the work that I do, and when I put my head above the parapet back in 2009, was how people would write to me and, and, and open up to me when I go and speak or online. And, and I could never have anticipated the, the amount of suffering that exists yeah. out there, whether it's to do with being LGBT plus or whether it's to do with being LGBT plus and a person of color or having a disability or a faith or whatever it is, it's huge. And a lot of it goes unreported. And particularly around LGBT plus, I've encountered so many families where they've lost a family member perhaps due to suicide, um, but they didn't want it to become public because of the shame they felt. And that's just no, not right. No. You know, it's heartbreaking. Um, so I guess I'm in a bit of a privileged position, really, where I kind of see, I, I, you know, I've got a very different perspective on things. Um, and it just brings me back to the importance mm, of kindness yeah. and compassion and acceptance. But, you know, and if you think back 10 years ago, there were countries that I could go and speak in and not even think about it. But now I could go there and I'd need security. Well, even, you know? even the US, I mean, I, you know, it's Roe versus Wade is, is the yeah. undermining of what you were saying about it starts with statutory and then it becomes, that's how culture changes. You know, if you, if you go into a state where it's impossible to get an abortion and then the same Supreme Court is now starting to say, oh, well, actually, we, we aren't that happy with states like Florida are now starting to say acts like Section 28 are going to be brought back into state by state. It's an undermining of, of what I would say is progress. But as you said, it's it comes from, you know, there, there's a part of your book, actually, which is brilliant in that you acknowledge that whenever you meet people who 
who you're introducing a concept that may be different to generationally, anything they've been brought up with, something they don't recognize, it brings up, you know, phobia, a fear. And so yeah. therefore it's really important to start from a place of, this is not an attack on you and your belief systems. It's merely an accommodation of me and mine. It's that, how do I understand you, meet you where you're at, reinforce your own identity, and then we can have a conversation to, to see how we can make some progress. And that's what I think is missing. That's where I think we've gone to this polarization that you're ex you, you've just explained is, is very definitely being seen in the world. I agree. And it's, it's very interesting you've, you've said that. It's reminded me, it's taken me back actually to 2009. So back in 2009, when we first got that data set that revealed the amount of bullying in our school, the first thing I did actually was look at what was out there in terms of um, provision for training teachers around LGBT plus inclusion. And I had a conversation with um, Southwark Council. Uh, my school was in Southwark, uh, London Borough of Southwark. I also had conversations with, with other head teachers. And it became apparent that there had been stuff available previously, at least in mm, the secondary mm. sector, um, not, not for the primary sector. Um, and actually, th there was one particular charity, I think, that had done some materials for primary schools. But when I spoke to um, a lot of people, they, they, they remembered receiving it and had thrown it in the bin or stuck it yeah. in the bottom of a drawer. And to me, that was really interesting. That was the, that, to me, that was where my curiosity went immediately. And I kind of knew the answer myself because at times in my life, I felt like it too. But what I said to them was, why did you do that? And they went, because it's, it yeah. feels really scary. You know, it's not stuff that we know about. And, and I thought that's what you've got to deal with first before you start sending people packs of resources going, you need to do LGBT plus because all you're going to do is scare people or, or push them further away. And that's not what it's about. And, and interestingly, whenever I work with teachers, and I, and I actually have just done it before this podcast interview, I ask all the educators that I work with in this country and abroad, when you were at school yourself, did you ever have a single lesson about LGBT plus lives, histories, experiences, and societal contributions? Rarely does anybody no. put their hands up. Neither did I. I went through the state education system, never once having a lesson, an assembly, no. a conversation, about the simple fact that people like me, Hannah, exist and we deserve yeah. our time and place. But also yeah. that we're not just LGBT+, that's a bit of who we are, an important bit, that we fall asleep on the sofa, we sing songs, we write poetry, we go to work, you know, we can well, look love, after people. You know, I love that, you know, that, we, that part of your work actually is identifying those amazing role models. You know, Dame Kelly Holmes just came out and said it was from fear of being arrested because she had this background from the military that had prevented her doing that mm. you are doing such a great job of helping people like hannah and it's true i have learned more about um that whole identity through hannah she's taught me everything i didn't mm. learn it at school and i'm now yeah. part of that process of okay well here's what i've learned here's what i need to share but i think what what's most important about what you just said was you know there's a story in the book around this being brought into primary schools can really 
trigger people. We're not talking about sexuality. Mm. We're going to, we're going to um, indoctrinate children who are too young for this conversation. <laughs> and one of the ways you do this is by just highlighting scenarios. And, you know, I know Hannah's a big fan of, um, there's a podcast with Rose and Rosie, who are two mums who now have a little boy Ziggy. And the scenario is they go to school and they're the two mummies and they have their little boy. And then a very innocent question from another primary school age, probably five-year-old child on the open day. Why does Ziggy have two mummies and why do I have a mummy and a daddy? And if the primary school teacher hasn't had any time to reflect on the language, the conversation, it can quickly become, a, let's not talk about that, which children pick up on those nonverbal communications just as much as the words. Absolutely. And that's why the work you're doing is so important. And that's where it starts through. And that's not that it's not that teacher's no, fault. It's no, not that practitioner's fault. Not, they, let's not they, blame they anybody the, for the fact that this is all no, new and different. It's yeah, absolutely. But but in that moment, through no fault of their own, what they what they essentially could be doing is creating exactly. an air of shame that then the child that's got the same sex parents picks up on and, mm, and that's where mm. it starts, you know, that's exactly. where, right there. And, and bless, bless that teacher. They might not even know. They, or that it's just they put on a spot, you, you know, know, because there is a first time for everything and it's like, yeah. Oh, and that's why yeah. it's so important. We have these conversations. It's training in a way, but it's also allowing the people who are, have that identity in those relationships to, to, what is the language? How do you want to describe it? You know, how would you describe it to mm. your child? This is important to, to understand that narrative yeah. rather than say, this is what we are teaching and this is how we're going to put it across to people, which nobody wants. And in a primary school, sorry, and in a primary school, of course, that's as simple as just making sure that when children arrive at school, that you create a space for them yes. to talk about their family, yes. however it looks. And more that's and it. more, you know, with <laughs> parents separating and different children in different scenarios, isn't it, it, it would just be, I mean, I think one of the things that's so heartbreaking about your story is there was nobody to identify with how you felt. There was nobody you could say, oh, mm. this is the role model for who I, who I express myself as, my mm. identity. It was invisible and feeling invisible must be so painful. Yeah, uh, you know, if you're in San Francisco for the first time and I went into a bookstore and um, there was a pile of books uh, with a rainbow flag. And I, and I kind of wandered over to it and there was a children's book. Um, and I picked it up and it was called Daddy's Roommate, I think. Um, and I picked it up and it was about a child that lived with his dad and his dad. And I picked it up and I got to page three. And in a bookshop in San Francisco, in full view of everybody, I just sobbed. Yeah. And, and, and I just thought, I've never once in my life read a book that reflected my experience of being a human being on the planet and an experience that I didn't choose mm. and had no choice over. Not, it's not a lifestyle. No, yeah. it's just who I was born to be. And at the age of 53, I can say, thanks, mum and dad, and thank you, universe. Brilliant. And I wouldn't have it any other way now. But to be able to say that to you, Kat, is a privilege, of course, that not every LGBT plus person is able to get to in their lives mm. because of prejudice, because of discrimination, and a huge, huge lack of education not just in our education systems but also around the world as well yeah and i think that really highlights i mean i'm sure that's why you're, you're a very powerful writer you're a very powerful storyteller but why that deep deep understanding of the words 
really matter. Words can mm. be weapons. Mm. Having 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 other people write it down, create those books, create those stories. You know, I've just been watching It's a Sin, which I think is just a magical mm. evocation of of you know, this is where we don't want to return to. Mm. This yeah. this cannot happen again. Um, and it's it's that moment where I guess you you do suddenly understand that this is this is a calling this is something that you know i i think the most touching moment of of the soul music um podcast was when you you talked about going into the royal Vauxhall, the yeah the royal Vauxhall tavern and feeling like home mm. um because yeah. everybody needs a community everybody even if it's not within their family even if their family never actually understand that for themselves it's finding your people, which is absolutely, important. yeah. You know, that was the first time, whatever age I was, I think I was about thirty then. You know, the school hadn't been affirmative. The town in which I lived wasn't affirmative. My family at that point, and I stress at that point, were not affirmative. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the jobs that I was working in, I, I could never fully be myself, um, and I encountered homophobia in those those contexts as well. So there wasn't an affirmative environment, and then and then that day when I was around thirty years old you know, uh, on somebody's advice, went to this pub in South East London, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, which I knew nothing about. Now I know just what a historical beacon for the LGBT plus community it is, but then I didn't. And, and, and walked in and, and was just surrounded by people who kind of smiled at me, made me feel welcome and actually couldn't find words apart from I'm, I'm home, I'm home. Mm -hmm. And that must've come, it wasn't a conscious choice to say those words. I was surprised as anybody else in the barman gave me a very odd look. But it just came out of me and, and was followed by open tears. Um, mm. and, it, and I realised that it was such a profound moment, I'll, I'll never forget it, um, that, that it, what it was was finding acceptance, finding a sense of belonging purely for being who I authentically was rather than a modified, compromised version of myself. You know, I started to change the way that I walked at primary school because people said it, mm. I was... I was girly, in inverted commas. I changed the way that I spoke because people said, oh, when you talk, you kind of, you're a bit, you're a bit exaggerated, a bit flouncy. It was actually my natural voice. So I modified it. I modified um, the way that I ran. I modified the clubs that I went to at school. I modified the lessons that I chose. And all of that, of course, affects you when you're in school, but then it inevitably affects your career pathways as well. So actually yeah. my early 20s, was a mess, if I'm honest. It was a mess of unfulfilling jobs and me not being very good at those jobs because I was too scared of being caught out for being me at work. Um, and also the, the relationships that I had at that time, you know, I was bringing all of that damage from, from childhood and, and, and from being othered by society into those relationships. Um, you know, and I'm very, you know, I've learned to be kind to my younger self. I understand why that happened and where that was coming from. But I wouldn't want to be that person again, and I wouldn't want anybody else to have to go through that. And that is, is you know, it, it just encompasses, I think, why you bring such empathy to the work you do. You must hear some amazing stories, you know, some tragic, but some really empowering stories from the young people whose lives you impact. I can yeah. only imagine that it's a, it's a position of real privilege. It, it, it is, you know, and I, I you know, as I said already, I never planned to do this. So as far as I was concerned, 
there wasn't an intended outcome of, uh, necessarily it was and there is never a kind of fixed destination with this work it's about remaining agile i think um because humanity continues to shift and change around us and so do identities and terminology but uh, you know the first time somebody stops you in the street and and says for example i'm now working in europe in a human rights organization because of the assembly in which you came out as gay mm. you know that just kind of hits you hard um and, and, and it's, a, it's a, just a huge privilege. And so from my point of view, if I've made a difference to one person's life, um, then job done. Um, and it's, it's, you know, sometimes people will talk about measuring impact. Well, I don't, I don't know how I would ever do that anyway. You know, obviously we did do that in, in the schools that I work with. We can do that in multiple ways by looking at incidents of homophobic, biphobic and transphobic bullying and attendance and academic outcomes. But actually, around that there's always lots of softer data i suppose they call it in terms what would have of happened if this hadn't been the yeah, case yeah yeah and, yeah. It, and it just in it the words that come to mind are enriching cohesive community and and joyful because it you get it right and it impacts upon everybody within that school community yeah. because it has because kindness has benefits for everybody within a school community so whereas i often get labeled as that gay teacher people actually shout at me in the street oh there's that gay teacher um, or people will go, oh, you're, you're out there flying a rainbow flag. Actually, yeah, I do fly, fly a rainbow flag sometimes, but actually the flag I'm flying has got a human being on it because I want everybody to be okay, you know? I want everybody to have an equal chance um, yeah. and, and have their needs met equitably. Um, and that's and so that's true. I mean, it's, it's celebrating diversity because this is a conversation not just about uh, LGBTQ plus rights it's about what if you're being maligned because of your race religion yeah. disabilities you know that yeah. othering is yeah. also all encompassing and yeah. and your your process is what is so magical it's this let's meet people where where they're at discuss everybody's prejudices start yeah. from the premise of i have pre prejudices you have prejudices what do we want to to do with them you know mm. let's put them out in the open yeah, and yeah. then we can start having a conversation which is so much more powerful than this hurling bricks across the wall at each other and and seeing who wins um, yeah i think that you know i i reflected i re, you know i've reflected a lot on kind of where it goes wrong um in certain contexts where you really do get a, a kind of real division and a pushback and i and i think it's when people go out there and kind of they want other people to think how they think immediately it's like they mm -hmm. think they can flick a switch and a lifetime of a lack it. of education yeah. a lack of intergenerational prejudice or faith-based prejudice wherever it's coming coming from you can just kind of flick a switch and, and everybody's okay with it and i think there was a time when because of the equality act and because people were i'm frightened of getting in trouble for saying the wrong thing it shut people down. Mm. So they kind of, they became compliant. Some people could become compliant um, because they wanted to do the right thing. A lot of people do, most people do, I think. And, and, they, and they wanted to sort of be, be compliant with the Equality Act. But did that tackle their own prejudices and biases? No, so they festered. Mm. And, I think, and I think from the beginning with my work, what made my work distinct from somebody like, you know, um, Stonewall or whoever, you know, and all of those organizations do great work in their own way. But, but for me, I thought, what, what's different about the approach that I take? And I think it's because I start with, well, I started with me. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> I started here. Put yourself right in the middle yeah. of what do I need? I love uh, that. You know, and, it, and that's not, you know, and that wasn't intended to kind of make it all about me. It was about me going, well, what am I prejudiced about? And actually back in 2009, when I sat down to, tra- to write that training program, I thought I can't authentically go out and speak for any community and especially the LGBT plus community if I've got any prejudices myself. So have I? And yes, I did because of growing up in a family that back then was very prejudiced, growing up in a world that was very prejudiced. And at that point, still not being completely comfortable with who I was as a gay man because of internalized homophobia. Mm. And, you know, back in the eighties, my family was very transphobic. And I'd never had any education about trans. So when I then am given a statutory responsibility to, you know, include and keep safe students, parents and carers and staff that are trans or non-binary, you know, there's a void in my own learning and understanding. And over the years into that space had come some anxiety and fear and misinformation and and stereotyping. So at that point, when you recognise that, for me, that's a really in- interesting place to be. It's exciting. It's about going, oh, wow, yeah, I have got a prejudice. I have got a, a gap in my learning that's enabling prejudice and, and bias. What am I going to do about it? I've got mm. a choice there. I can either now attack people, exclude them, be horrible to them, or I can understand that that's coming from me, not them, and own it and work with it and see it as an exciting teaching moment for me to grow from. Yeah. And what is the impact of that potentially? that then other people feel more included in the world and feel better about themselves and can have a better life. So that's really at the core of, of the way I work. So I don't try not, I try not to, don't always get it right, but I try not to focus on the kind of visible behaviours um, in terms of how the prejudice manifests itself. What I try and do is look underneath it and go, I can see some fear. I can see some anxiety. I can see a lack of learning or education or somebody that's believed what they've read on social media rather than spending time talking to real trans people or or working with a trans-specific training organisation that work in the field all of the time, Um, Mm. which is where I would rather place my own awareness. Um, So for me, the moments when, uh, and it can still happen, you know, my prejudices can still be triggered. And and, and for me, when they do, I meet them with kindness and I go, oh, there you are. Right, come over. I I want to think about where you're coming from and why you're there. And knowing that, you know, prejudice comes from prejudging it's it's innate to us it's mm. it's part of how we survive you know making those instant decisions about whether somebody's safe or not yeah. safe or you know we're countering our, our kind of our state of being if you like um that i think is something that oh, good it should be part of all all education systems and i can't honestly say it was part of my education growing up to sort of even acknowledge that i had prejudices but the other part of your training, which I think is so valuable, and I wish we had more of this, is restorative justice. Mm. So not, you know, this reinforcing the difference by you're to blame if you use words that are damaging. Um, it's about bringing people into the fold and saying, okay, so now you do understand. And then you're going to make a choice about whether you still continue to use those words. But let's not persecute you from the beginning for having made that bad judgment in the first place Mm. Um, yeah you know if you if you if I go back to that initial data set in my school in 2009 one of the big issues that came out of that was that 98 percent of our school community were hearing and using the expression it's so gay that's Mm. so gay and if I think back to my own education when I was in state education in Leicestershire in the 80s 
Leicester was diversifying very rapidly um, in terms of race. So uh, there was a problem in my school back then with the N-word and the P-word. Mm. And teachers just told us you are not to use those words without telling us why. So what did we do? We stopped using them because we didn't want to get into tension. And we found other words to use that kind of did the same thing when the, when the teachers weren't around. Yeah. Nobody ever sat us down and went, why? This is the potential impact upon a vulnerable group of you using those words. And actually, that's the information we needed. Yeah. So back in 2009, initially, we did do a program of work with students around the history of the word gay and word use. And we essentially taught them um, that we could say the word gay in a classical sense. And they did poems and stories where they used the word gay in the old fashioned sense, if you like, because we can still use it in that way. Nobody took it away. And they then had a conversation in assembly and their podcasts around how the gay community kind of adopted it uh, to describe themselves or some of them did. So it has an additional meaning, but that doesn't take away the original meaning. And then mm. finally, that it then evolved to become a slur, a prejudicial slur. Now, at that point, we had a choice just to go, we don't want you to do that. And if you do, we'll treat it like racism. Or we had a choice to go, we don't want you to do that. And if you do, we'll treat it like racism because, yeah. because, of, this, because of the impact and then have conversations. And for me, that's the bigger win, because then what you're doing is you're working with attitudes and you're exploring the multiple perspectives. And if we upscale that, to me, that reminds me of the kind of freedom of speech, cancel culture debates, where people use words and phrases, get shouted down, so then they become more entrenched and angry <laughs> and are more likely to have a go back. Yeah. I, think, I think for me, it's always about, oh, it's, you know, I, I've said it, and I do say in workplaces and in, in playgrounds, people will use a word that you know, I, I feel is non-inclusive, you know, I can tell them off, I can shout at them, I can give them my scariest head teacher look, or I can go, that's really, you know, that's really interesting that you've used those word, that word. You know, if, if it feels comfortable, could we just have a little bit of chat about that? Mm. And see it as a teaching moment and see it as a kind moment and see it as a moment for people to kind of grow from. Yeah. And, and many people really appreciate that. And often people will go, oh, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to cause offence. And often people don't. Um, yes. But too often, I think people do get sometimes shouted down um, when they've genuinely made mistakes. And it's always about how we react and respond in those situations I think, that, that makes the difference in terms of taking people with us or pushing them further away. And I want as many people to come with me as possible because it's just about being kind. <laughs> yeah, and it is. And, and I think it is. It's that moment where you're creating as much shame as they've created yeah. in using yeah. those words by saying shame. We all get you. it wrong. We yeah, all get it wrong. Yeah. It's okay to get it wrong. I still get it wrong sometimes. It's about how we react and respond when we get it wrong that's important. Absolutely. Now, you've used kindness. I think kindness and compassion is at the core of celebrating difference. And that is something for me that I see as a way of overcoming challenge. Often kindness is is the path through. You know, when we take ourselves out of ourselves and we start to think about other people, suddenly the penny drops. Is there an act of kindness, something that sprung to mind for you when I asked about it as a story? Oh, an act of, of kindness. I think, um, gosh, I think, I, think it was a, I think it was more an act of acceptance, actually. Uh, and it was, it was 2016, and it was when Mike, my husband, Mike, and I, we got married at the house's apartment. And on that day, um, 
which was a day that I never, ever thought, you know, I'd never even considered that I would get married. No. You know, how odd now to think that I went through nearly 45, 45 years of my life thinking I'll never get married. It just discounting it because I couldn't get married. Yeah. Um, so then to have, be in a space where you can get married was just kind of a revolution, really. Magical. Uh, so, yeah, it was magical. And Mike and I, we were married at Parliament. And, um, you know, we turned around and looked behind us and all of our parents were there. Oh, you know, really? and if you, so everybody has now yeah, just taken yeah. this on board. Wow. And, you you know, you've read my book, Kat. <laughs> you know the yeah. history. Yeah, you know, yeah. And uh, they were all there and they were all happy for us. And it, for me, that moment was a moment of kindness, a moment of compassion, acceptance. But it, it fed, as these things inevitably do, it fed right back into my work. And, yeah. and, and, and words that I use when I'm out speaking to young people and, and, and colleagues in that sometimes people don't get it. We have to be patient and allow people to go on a journey. Yeah. And I think sometimes people, you know, and I understand where it comes from. I think sometimes people, again, it's kind of like flicking the switch. People expect to deliver information about being LGBT plus or, or maybe something else, you know, another protected characteristic or multiple protected characteristics mm. and kind of expect people just to get it in a moment and flick a switch and then get very angry or, or run away when they don't. And what my experience with my parents taught me and ever since then, over the last 13 years, experiences with educators and parents and carers and school governors and CEOs of big businesses, because I work in businesses as well, is that we have to create a kind space for people to learn and go on a journey. Yeah. And it comes back to kindness. Really? And that might be challenging for us. It might feel a bit affronting, but it's always then about noticing what's arising within, within ourselves and kind of letting that go. Because in that moment, it's not about us. It's about them and, in, and inviting them with kindness on the journey. Yeah, and knowing that you're undoing so much conditioning. I mean, it's, mm. it, it took many, many, many years to form that conditioning. Mm. And now it's going to take baby yeah. steps to undo it to yeah. and a willingness so yeah. i'm i'm so so glad that your your parents have been able to yeah bring themselves to that place of acceptance because yeah. it makes life so much more joyous for everyone yeah. concerned and yeah. like you know life's too short you know and um, you know it can be easy to harbor grudges and invest negative energy and and yeah or, yeah you know, we can let that go um you know, we should, we should keep ourselves safe. We should, you know, we should think about our own self-care and our own pride. However, there are times when it is okay to go back. Interestingly, a uh, little exclusive for you, there was a bit at the end of the small town boy program, which we just didn't have time, where um, we, we kind of, we brought it full circle. So you, you may remember that the lyrics to that song, I think, start with, you, you leave in the morning with everything you own in a little black case. Yeah, um, and, and that's quite an iconic line in terms of LGBT plus young people kind of having to leave their parents, you know, and, and sometimes migrate to cities where they feel safer. Um, but for me, of course, in a way, if, if not physically, but emotionally, I was able to get back on that train and go back yeah. and find acceptance and find love, albeit decades later. But it was still worth the wait and it was still worth doing. So actually, originally, the, the small town boy program would have ended with a description of, yeah, you can leave in the morning with your little black case. And one day, 
you might be able to get back on and reunite with those people that love you. It's, it's not a fate complete. If you're kind and you're patient, then hopefully you can nurture that in, in people that might have initially rejected you because of a lack of education, because of intergenerational prejudice or stuff they've read in the media, you know? Mm. So it's always about looking beyond those visible behaviors of, of rejection and discrimination and hate for me and, and thinking, what is the unmet need there? Let's work with that. Yeah, and I think that is your courage and strength as a leader. That's, that's where it comes from, is that deep, deep understanding of human psyche. It's uh, phenomenal. I hope so. It's, yeah, it's, I guess it's that, I guess what, I've, what I was able to find, you know, I've, I've been a meditator for many years. Um, I taught myself before I then went, and, you know, uh, before mindfulness became a thing, really. And then mm. I went and did do some mindfulness training and actually trained to be a teacher myself of mindfulness because I'm a little bit cynical. And I wanted to know how it worked. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and actually, you know, that really taught me to, to, to kind of notice what's going on in myself and, and, and then think about what might be arising in the person or the people that I'm speaking to and be able to give that space and, and patience. And I think, you know, one of the most powerful things that I do it's a really simple thing um as a, as a gay man uh, or 53 years old if I had a pound for every time I've been in a pub a club a restaurant whatever it is or the gym and somebody said to me so so you're gay aren't you when did you first know you were gay oh. <laughs> how did you first know you were gay if I had a quid for every time that had happened I would have my own jets you know you're a millionaire um Colby, Colby Co Alexis Carrington jet um so uh, uh, about 10 years ago I was I was speaking to a head teachers conference and you know they billed me as as they did back in those days they were like this is this is one of the, this is the first gay male primary school teacher to have come out to his whole school community and in the international press which made me <laughs> laugh because I knew I knew damn well there were other LGBT yeah, yeah. but they just didn't they didn't want that they wouldn't talk to the press at that point um, well, no, and it was very understandable. I mean, you said yourself that you would be branded potentially a paedophile. Oh, groomer, you know, paedophile. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. like, like yeah. Yeah, there's reasons your... not to to even yeah taunt the tabloid press. God yeah. sake. But um, but you know, I was I was interested in that question that I was repeatedly asked. So quite, it was quite unplanned. It just arose out of me when I was speaking. I just stopped what I was doing and said, you know, colleagues, and it was a big old conference. I said, colleagues, actually, I'd just like to ask you a question. I always knew who I was and who I was attracted to. Um, so if that's the case, how and when did you know who you are, whoever you are? Mm. And the whole room, just, just, just the whole energy of the room just shifted. And this space opened up, which was fascinating. Um, and I kind of thought, wow, I just dropped a huge hand grenade into this room. So yes. let's sit in. We sat in this space for about three minutes. And afterwards I said, okay, that was unplanned. That just came out of my subconscious. How did that feel? And people were like, it felt really challenging. I felt a bit affronted. I felt a bit angry. I felt a bit upset. And I said, well, that's really interesting because that wasn't my intention. However, that's a question that when you're LGBT+, you get asked all through your life in, in mm. lots of different situations when actually you might just be having a cup of tea or your dog might have just died or your parent might have just died and you just yeah. want to get on. With, but suddenly people kind of think that they've got a right to go in and ask really personal stuff. 
So surely if we're going to do that and ask that of people, we need to be able to ask it of ourselves as well, because that's fair, isn't it? That's equality. And since that day, I ask it, whether I speak in a, in a school, whether I speak in a faith organisation, whether it's a government committee, or whether it's with, you know, after this, I've, I'm speaking to, I think, seven different countries through a, a big global corporation. And I will ask the same question. Yeah. And I think unless you're LGBT plus and you've never been asked that question, um, actually, when you are asked that question, yeah, it can feel a bit affronting. But actually, it's really, really interesting really interesting and it and it just enables us to really kind of get to the core of who we are and the journeys that we go on it's fascinating for me because i work as a life coach and one of the first things i try and unpick is who are you because once you understand that you you can stop competing you don't have to put the labels on it's not Mm. about what you do who are you and often the place that's the easiest to access is what did you love doing when you were six? What did you mm. love doing as a kid when nobody was watching? You know, it's not about what you do now because you're paid to do it. Yeah, and yeah. so many people have never, ever revisited that time in their life. They've never thought about it. They've just gone to school. They've put on the labels. And then they wonder, they get to their mid-40s and go, oh, yeah, who am I under the, yeah. the mother, the, the, the wife, the sister, the, you know, whatever the thing is. and I think it is a, a wonderful question to open yeah. anything with. But as you say, not from a, um, it's like, it's a difficult question to answer. So why would I think that you should have a more complete answer yeah. because of your identity than I do because of yeah. mine, you know? Yeah, and inevitably you can see people's kind of, uh, and that's why I never get people to share. So it's, it's so no one, we'd never Deeply discuss personal, it. Yeah, we, this share. is always one-on-one. It's yeah. like, yeah, and yeah. and. And, 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 and emotional, emotional. It is emotional. And it's also about getting people to not, not judge themselves as they're doing it and not compare, you know, the old comparing mind. It's just about creating a space and seeing what comes into it. And yeah. of course, the, and the, the only answer to that question is that everybody's got a different answer. And of course, if that's true of us as adults, then it's true of young people. And despite what the government seems to think, by labelling everything as age appropriate, young people are all completely different and emerge as individuals, academically, emotionally, and in terms of sexuality and gender identity, at completely different points. So we yeah, yeah. we have to be there to capture them and love them and educate them yeah. in every moment. And celebrate that difference. Celebrate that difference, as opposed to try to put people in boxes and, and yeah. harness it, yeah. It's, it's, it, the power of letting those labels go is huge. You know, I remember I went on a meditation retreat, a five-day retreat, and somewhere in the middle of that, I made a conscious choice one day to let all of the labels go. Um, mm. And, I, and I, I, I kind of mentally let them go one by one. It was like I could see them drift away. You know, head teacher, colleague, husband. And, and ultimately, I got right down to the nitty gritty. So I let go gay. I let go Sean. I let go my date of birth. I let go male. And at that point, it was like, it's really hard to describe, but it's like I put my hand in a, in a, in a lighthouse in the beam at the top and the beam just shone out. And I thought, there you are, there yeah. you are. That's yeah. who I, re- that's who I really am. And I'm not even going to put any more words on it because yeah. it was just, and I, and that was a real privilege to have got to that point. Yeah. Um, yeah right. And I'd, I'd say some love in there. And I think essentially that's all of us. And, and, and one of the most powerful things about your message is how, 
when we other people, when we damage that sense of self and identity from such an early age, we stop that light coming out. We stop people's potential in its tracks. Absolutely. You know? Um, so powerful. Now we we came together because of um, music, small town boy. I just feel like that's an anthem, and it's. It, I I now whenever I hear it, I think oh, that, that reminds me. I must email Sean. Um, what came up for you when I asked about a piece of music that has special meaning for you? Um, okay, so one of them would be uh, another Bronski beat song, actually. Right. Uh, it's called Why. I think it was the second, I think it was the follow-up single to Small Town Boy. And in the first couple of lines, and I can't remember it completely now, but basically the opening line or the second line is something like, contempt in your eyes as I turn to kiss his lips. Mm. And that was the only time that I'd ever heard a man sing about kissing another man. So yeah. in terms of, you know, he talks about the absence of role models. Yeah. What you, in the absence of role models, what you have to do is you kind of have to grab at these tiny little fragments. And that, and that was a huge fragment for me. And I kind of like was, oh, I'm not alone. There yeah. is somebody else like yeah. me. So that, that would be one of them lyrically. Musically, it would be I Feel Love by Donna Summer. <laughs> I feel love. And I feel like that, that is your anthem. That is yeah. just, it sums it up. So I'm going to add... I, small town boy has to go because we have a, a Spotify playlist. Brilliant! I love love listening to because each one of those songs takes me to a different place, yeah. a different conversation. Um, but I think all three need to go on the list. Um, <laughs> um, you, can, you can bring that sort of sense of diversity and inclusion into even even the music you bring. Just wonderful, just wonderful. Yeah. Music has. Music sustained me through those dark years. Music, the joy of music, the joy of shutting my door in my bedroom, putting on Donna Summer, letting it transcend me to some other place, you know, go west by the village people, the, the mm. sense of mel the melancholy and yearning in that song. And I was always a big ABBA fan, so it was a huge privilege to be invited to go to their premiere of their ABBA voyage um, a few weeks ago and actually be in the room with ABBA all together wow. with thousands of lifelong ABBA fans. And ABBA was something that I was bullied for at school for liking ABBA almost as much as being gay. Well, I remember um, when I was researching this and, and I heard a story, I don't know who you were talking to, but you said I knew you know, when everybody else was talking in the playground, whether they, they fancied the blonde one or the brunette one, mm. I knew I fancied the one with the beard. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, I, th that's suddenly, I can't say that out loud. And that's when mm. you get that sense of shame creeps in straight away. And yeah. Yeah. This, this, this Saturday just gone, I went into central London and I bought a t-shirt at the ABBA concert. And, and, you know, if you spoke to my husband, he would tell you this is true. I, I, I was here for an hour going, I don't know if I can go into town with this t-shirt on. <laughs> and that and that goes that goes back to that, the playground. That's still yeah, so little short. And so I just sad. thought, right, let's notice what's going on here. There's some fear. There's some anxiety. Yeah. Let's be kind to myself. Am I going to be put on the t-shirt? Yeah. <laughs> and I went into town. And <laughs> no, it makes total sense. It's like this. This represents a certain degree of danger. And and you know, although we are joking about it now, this is danger that that ends either in people taking their own lives or literally being being killed on the street for who they are which is why 
we can never forget how important your messaging and, and the work you're doing is. Did you play the Donna Summer at your wedding? That was my other question for you. Yeah, we did. We did actually. Oh, I can just um, imagine. Yeah, we, we had a kind of curated set list um, that we playing or, or we played, sorry, or sang. We did sing a bit as well in, in an underground shaft in Southeast London in the Brunel Museum, which is where we had our wedding. Oh. Um, and actually, it was, we always wanted music to be right at the heart of our wedding. We didn't do speeches. We did some spoken word pieces. We sang some stuff. Um, and just, yeah, music sustained me. It sustains my husband and I. And to be back in to be back in concert halls again, surrounded by lots of diverse people who have gathered together in one space to be joyful again is just utterly, utterly brilliant. And and is a, you know, it's a, it's a tonic for all of the darkness that sadly seems to exist in our world right now. Well, what I'd say about you, Sean, is you're someone who has a capacity to take darkness and turn it into light. It's just amazing um thank you it's been a real privilege to this is a baby baby podcast compared with some of the platforms that you're used to being on and i'm so grateful to you for taking the time i think that's something you give so generously and for helping me to spread the word within my little community about the stuff that matters the stuff that i think works and why it's so important it's, uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure to spend some time with you. It's, it's been a pleasure and a privilege, Kat. Thank you. And I would just like to say, I mean, anyone who, they, they, we're going to put links in the show notes. You're easily found on LinkedIn. You're easily found Googling your name. But for school leaders who listen to this, um, and I do have some within my community, how can they how can they get involved with training? Do you do all the training yourself? Do you enable that, facilitate that for other people? What's what's the process? Yeah, I have my own uh, training suite that I deliver in primary schools, secondary schools, faith schools, independent state sector, whatever it is. And it's very much bent and shaped according to individual need and school's need. Um, but as part of that, I will then also signpost um, support from additional organisations and from uh, for families. I think what school leaders tend to like about my work is that it's rooted in education itself you know it grew out of a school and obviously I've worked as a school leader and in school improvement and sometimes I think amongst school leaders that might be harboring a bit more anxiety about this work that's a really comfortable way in for them yeah brilliant brilliant well thank you I started this with a thank you I'm going to end it with a thank you thank you keep doing the work you're doing it's it's life-saving it really is Thank you so much, Kat. Thank you. Thanks for all your kind words and support. I hope you'll agree that time spent with Sean is definitely time well spent. There are so many takeaways from that conversation about the power of kindness, empathy and patience to build bridges and affect lasting and positive change. I loved his story about finding acceptance from his family and it's my hope that inclusion for all will become part of the syllabus for all schools. A great place to start is by reading Sean's book, Celebrating Difference. And if you or someone you know is affected by the issues that we've discussed here today, there's also a link in the show notes for some helplines and resources. For regular listeners, you may have noticed that for the first time in 65 episodes, I forgot to ask Sean for the wisdom he'd like to add to the collection. So I reached out afterwards and here's what he said. 
I believe now is the time for humanity to hard reset our factory settings to kindness. So please be kind to yourself, to others and to our ailing world. That seems like a very fitting place to end this week. I do hope you'll take those words to heart and they'll be a comfort to you. Have a great week and I'll leave you with the story that connected Sean and I in the first place. On that Soul Music podcast, there's a link, of course, to the full episode in the show notes. So over the years, I've heard Small Town Boy many, many times in many different contexts. But I guess, apart from the first time I heard it, the most powerful memory was actually at the Vauxhall Tavern. After Jimmy Somerville left Bronski Beat, he was replaced by a singer called John Foster. And when John left, he was replaced in time by somebody called Jonathan Hellier. Now, Jonathan Hellier also worked as the Dame Edna Experience, the DE Experience, and he did a 10-year residency at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. My partner and I, we dropped by the RVT on a Sunday to catch the afternoon show by Jonathan. And um, as we all stood there with our pint glasses, suddenly he just announced, do you know what, I'm going to sing you a song that I've never sung you, and I'm really sorry I've never sung it to you before. And then those same pulsing electronic chords that I had heard back in my bedroom in June 1984 filled that TARDIS-like joyful little pub in Vauxhall. It was quite a surreal moment, really. I mean, I'm getting the chills now, actually, just recounting this experience to you, but it was as if the, the words, the lyrics, the meaning kind of rippled forward from that Saturday afternoon in June 1984. And I think by the time Jonathan hit the line, pushed around and kicked around, always a lonely boy, I went to swig on my beer. But as I as I raised my glass to my mouth, my hand started to shake and I lost it. And I just cried into my, into my flat lager. And I felt really embarrassed to kind of reveal myself and the emotions in that moment. But as I looked around, and I'll never forget it, there were so many people around me weeping and you know i knew i wasn't alone in that moment that extraordinary moment of shared homecoming of solidarity and cathartic i suppose emotional release that we had this unspoken sense of history and suffering and it was almost as if the memories of those all of us had lost through hiv and aids or through suicide along the way as a result of bullying it was as if they just kind of convened with us during the first verse of, or second verse of that song. And at that point, I turned round and hugged my partner. And never before so much had that felt like such a privilege. You know, I told him that I loved him because I could. Thank you so much for listening. There are almost a million podcasts out there to choose from, so I really appreciate you for choosing this one and spending your valuable time with me today. If you found it helpful, I would be truly grateful if you would rate and review it as it helps others to find us. And if you haven't already, you can hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to be sure of getting every episode sent to you. You can find all the resources we talk about and more about my guests in the show notes over at collectivewisdom.podbean.com or you can find me on Instagram at collectivewisdompod where I'd love to hear any feedback, suggestions for new guests or comments that you have. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're interested to know more about how my coaching can help you, you can find more about that on my website at catpreston.com. Thank you so much for joining me.